Gracious God and Father, you've promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire. It will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray, in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So this is the third Sunday of Advent, and the Gospel reading pertains to John the Baptist. And uh, let me share with you uh, the popular narrative regarding John. This is point one in your outline. Actually, letter B will start there. The popular narrative concerning John. This is what, what I'm about to tell you is what ministers around the Synod and outside of our Synod who are preaching on this text I'm telling you now what they're saying to their congregations this morning, okay? First of all, John is in prison, and that's true. We're told that in Luke chapter three, John's already in prison for violating um, what, I guess, Herod, uh, King Herod, uh, had taken his brother's wife. John correctly pointed out that was sinful. Uh, He got crossways with Herod, Herod threw him in prison, he will soon, John will soon have his head chopped off. That's all true. Point number two, John is in prison and he's heard about what Jesus is doing. All right? So Jesus is going around healing people. He's raising the dead. He did that in Luke chapter six, immediately before our gospel lesson for this morning. Also in Luke four, when he was preaching in Nazareth, he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives, thank John the Baptist here, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And so John, we read in verse 18 of our Gospel reading, He's heard these things about Jesus. The disciples of John report these things to him in prison. And so, in John's mind, what Jesus is doing is at odds with what he, John, had predicted of Jesus. What had John predicted of Jesus? He said, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That is judgment. And that's what John had predicted about Jesus. But Jesus isn't going around doing judgment. Jesus is doing something very different. He's bestowing the grace of God in abundant measure upon people who, like you and me, don't deserve it at all. And so, point number four, this is what everyone's saying around Synod today. Point number four is this. John is having doubts about Jesus. John is frustrated by the ministry of Jesus. And this prompts his question, you know, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John is disappointed in the ministry of Jesus because it doesn't meet John's own expectations. That's what everyone's hearing this morning, okay? That's the popular narrative about John. You'll find many commentaries that will say that about John. At the circuit meeting, our circuit pastors met, we meet uh, almost every month, 
uh, just this past week, we were talking about this text, and that was a consensus. Our consensus was, yeah, John's disappointed. He's having doubts. You know, you and I have doubts. John's like us. He's no different. That's kind of comforting to us, and it is, right? And I used to preach that way, too. When I addressed this text, I thought to myself, yeah, John's having doubts. That'll be the point of my sermon. Sermon, you and I have doubts. It's comforting. It's okay for us to have doubts, and it is. I'm not disputing that. But the fact is, we don't know what's going on in John's mind. The text doesn't tell us. Okay? I don't live in John's head. You don't either. And so point number one in the outline, what prompted John's question? The answer is, the text doesn't tell us. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know what's prompting him to ask the question. It could be that his disciples have doubts. So he sends his disciples to them to ask and clarify what's going on in their minds. We don't know. And I, I like to follow the advice that we speak when Scripture speaks, and when Scripture is silent, we must be silent as well. It's, it's a way to be textual, okay? And it echoes what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, don't, don't go beyond what's written. Don't add your speculation to the text unless you warn everybody. It's just my speculation. So if we don't know what's going on in John's mind, what we end up doing is we substitute what's going on in our head and attribute it to John. Because if you and I were in John's place, at least let me speak for myself, if I was in John's shoes in prison and watching Jesus go around and doing everything wonderful for everyone else but me, I'd have my doubts about him. And so I instinctively project that onto John. And that's point number two in the outline. Projection, that's a psychological term, projection occurs when we attribute our own feelings to someone else. And we do this all the time without thinking. I can remember, you know, back in high school, um, you know, I, I would have a crush on a girl, right? And uh, because I liked her, I just naturally assumed she liked me. And that almost never worked out. <laughs> you know, I, I just thought, oh, wow, she's so cool. She's so neat. I really appreciate her. I know she feels that way about me. And it wasn't true. <laughs> well, until I met Harriet, you know. And then she took some convincing, I might add. Uh, but but th see, that's projection. That's projection. Or ha have you ever thought like this? He just doesn't like me. They don't like me. I just know it. They don't like me. Well, quite possibly what's going on there is projection. You don't like them, but you don't want to have to face the fact that you don't like them. And so to explain the distance, the ill will between you and them, you attribute the ill will to them. You project it onto them. And we do this all the time. And so we, we project onto John how we would feel if we were in John's shoes. We would at least speaking for myself, I would, I would probably question God's fitness to be God. You know, 
or Christ's fitness to be the Christ. Letter A, our speculations about John say more about us than they do about John. I mean, John may really have doubts. I'm fine with that. I'm just, I just don't know. That's the point. I don't know. I don't live in his head. Letter B, and here's a warning. We have our own expectations about God, our own projections concerning God and Jesus. For example, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Or my Jesus would say this, as if we have our own personal Jesus. The only Jesus there is is the Jesus of Scripture. Now, we believe in him. He loves us. He died for us on the cross. But we don't have our own personal Jesus in distinction from the Bible, the one in the Bible. That's the only Jesus there is. See, we need to have him. This is my point. Or, uh, I've, I've run into this, and, and I've, I've thought this way myself. If it makes me feel uncomfortable, it can't be the will of God. Okay? You know, God would not want me to suffer. God would not want me to hurt. See, my, my God would not do that. Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever heard someone speak that way? My God would not want me to be uncomfortable. Well, for crying out loud, he asks us to carry a cross and follow him. That's, that's not comfortable. <laughs> so a quote from Randy Alcorn. He's uh, a guy, I, I don't really follow him, but I did like this quote. If you base your faith on a lack of affliction, your faith lives on the brink of extinction and will fall apart because of a frightening diagnosis or a shattering phone call, et cetera, et cetera. Token faith, token faith, that, that's fake faith, I guess. Token faith will not survive suffering, nor should it, nor should it. And so there's a contrast sometimes between our expectations of God on the one hand and God's performance, what he's actually doing on the other hand, and that can undermine our faith when we think that way. Our unrealistic expectations of God that we project onto him produce disenchantment in our hearts with God. It made me think of the labors in the vineyard. That's from Matthew chapter 20. Uh, the parable Jesus tells, and, and I think most of us are familiar with the story, um, but there's, this guy owns a vineyard, and he, early in the morning he hires workers, and, and the workers negotiate with him. They want a denarius, a full day's wage, a fair day's wage, and the, the master says, sure, fine, I'll give you a denarius. But throughout the day he keeps hiring more workers because he needs more workers. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Right up until the last working hour of the day, he hires more guys, and he says, I'll, I'll pay you what's right. 
And so when it comes time to pay, what does he do? He lines up the last to work first, and he gives them a full day's wage. And the guys at the end of the line who's worked all, they've worked all day, they're thinking, wow, we're going to make out like bandits, you know? If they get a full day's wage, what are we going to get? And of course, when it comes time to pay them, he gives them a denarius, and they're steamed. They're steamed. Wait a minute. You're paying us the same as you paid those guys that worked only one hour. We've borne the burden and the heat of the day, and you make them equal to us? No way. No way. And what does the owner say? Are you envious because I'm generous? Don't I have the right to do what I want with that which is my own? Or are you envious because I'm generous? Does it trouble you that God can be outrageously generous to people who obviously don't deserve it? I mean, obviously don't deserve it. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I, but I heard uh, illegal aliens crossing the southern border and they're separated from families. The government's considering giving each of them $450,000. I've heard that. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But I'm thinking, wait, really? $450,000 for each of them? Illegal immigrants? Because they're separated from their families? Is that right? And, and, and so here's, here's my point. In spiritual matters, does God do that? Does he do that? I think of the thief on the cross. I don't know who he killed. I don't know who he victimized to get on that cross, but he admitted he deserved to be there. And yet, in the last moments of his life, he hears the Savior speak. And he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Truly, I say to you. That means you could take this to the bank. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, you stop and think about that if you're the victim. Think about that. Does it trouble you when God is outrageously generous to those who in no way, shape, or form deserve it? Letter A, is God generous to a fault? Is he generous to a fault? The psalmist asked this question too, you know. Uh, I cite Psalm 73, where a righteous sufferer, a guy who's been victimized, he's looking at his victimizers, and I mean, they have it made in the shade, you know. They're prosperous. They're doing really well. They don't have the troubles, the problems that he's having to wrestle with. Is that, is that really life on this earth? Is that the way it is? You know. And it, it brings to mind the words of Peter. He said, the Lord is not slow about keeping his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you all, wishing that not any would perish but that all would come to repentance, including those who are the very worst among us, including those who make the front page of the paper because of some atrocity. It creates questions. 
God seems so slow in doing justice. Well, letter B, I'll say this for John, he did the right thing in going to Jesus. He went to Jesus with his question. And that's really what our epistle reading for today says as well. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, uh, together with uh, prayer and thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here's the result, the peace of God, which passes all understanding. It's beyond our understanding now. I, you know, don't ask me to explain it. I just work here. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is a peace that comes from taking the issue, the question, the concern, straight to God, pouring your heart out, and you go away with a sense of relief. Again, it's beyond our understanding. It's just how it works. He took his question to the right place, to Jesus. And let her see, faith... Faith now, not token faith, but genuine faith, continues to look to God in Christ even when he seems unjust, even when he seems unfair. And I like the way Job put it, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He can pull the rug out from under me, but I'm still going to cling to his robe. I'm still going to rub his promises in his ears. It's Jesus on the cross. It's David in Psalm 22. My God, he doesn't give up on God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Continues to trust even when there's no visible reason to do so. That's faith. So letter D. Shall we look for another Messiah, another Jesus who fits our expectations Or will we humbly receive the Jesus who far exceeds, he far exceeds our expectations of grace? The Jesus who's not only generous to us, but he's also generous to others, and it's okay. The Jesus who not only sometimes is so generous to others that we sometimes take offense at his generosity. That Jesus is the Jesus of Scripture, and our offense is solely our own. John asked, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I don't live in John's head. You don't either. I don't know what motivated John's question, because the text doesn't tell us, but I do know how I would feel if I were in John's shoes. I'd be asking, why does this Jesus seem to be helping everyone else while I go a-wanting? Why does his ministry benefit others while I remain in jail? God's generosity shocks us when we see it displayed in the lives of others. It offends us when we see it applied to other people. But when it's applied to us, it is the most comforting truth you and I will ever know. And God is generous to you. He is forgiving toward you. He is in your baptism, in the absolution spoken earlier, in the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day. 
No matter what else may happen to you today, whether it's good or whether it's bad, no matter what else the day may bring, you can confidently say, God has been good to me in Christ. He is my Savior. I have no need for another. I shall not seek another. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, amen.